I'll sing it. Before we start the show, just want to let you know that our friends at the NPR podcast Planet Money are doing something really interesting. They are buying oil, crude oil, and following it all the way to your gas tank. Hear what the journey reveals about our economy on Planet Money, where the reporters talk like real people and are even fun to listen to, on the NPR One app or at npr.org slash podcasts. Okay, here's the show. It's the NPR Politics Podcast here with our roundup of the week's political news. And by that we mean Trump news. We will talk about the GOP nominees' no good, very bad week and ask how this is different than all other weeks and what Hillary Clinton's been up to. We will answer some listener mail. It's been a while since we did that. And of course, in the show with Can't Let It Go, when we all share one thing we just can't stop thinking about this week. I'm Tamara Keith. I cover the White House and the campaign. I'm Sam Sanders, campaign reporter. I'm Scott Detrow, campaign reporter. I'm Ron Elving, editor correspondent. And welcome to our listeners who started listening during the conventions. The weekly roundup is a little different than those nightly episodes. Uh, and we're all a little bit more awake. We are. It's we nice are. to be alive I again. I took two days off. After my weekend. It was great. Yeah. And I spent a good chunk of Tuesday listening to Fleetwood Mac albums that aren't rumors. <laughs> Tusk is really good. It's um, like all the Bill Clinton nostalgia that got you down the Fleetwood no, Mac? No. no. So, guys, I know something that you don't know. Hmm. Something very special about this episode of the podcast. What? Go on. Is it our 100th episode? It is our 100th episode. Whoa! <laughs> <laughs> Who gets to give the thank you speech? <laughs> Mr. Elving. We made it. Mr. Re- Go ahead. Go ahead. Do it. You know, when we first began this podcast, <laughs> I said to myself, I wonder how we'll feel after we've done a hundred of them. And now we know. Nothing. We feel nothing. <laughs> we didn't even know that it was the hundredth. There was a hole where my heart used to be. <sighs> wow. Well, we're just, we'll just have to plow on for 200, guys. Hopefully not in the next hundred days. Lord willing. We could do one every day, though, at the rate we've been going this week. The news has kind of gone there at times. Yeah, so let's just run through Donald Trump's week, which actually goes back about two weeks. Since the Republican convention wrapped up two weeks ago, here is a short list of things that have happened. Donald Trump seemed to call on Russia to hack Hillary Clinton's emails, but he later said he was being sarcastic. He seemed <laughs> confused about whether Russia had a presence in Ukraine. They do, like Crimea. He attacked the parents of a fallen Muslim American soldier who spoke at the DNC. We did an entire podcast on that. Yes, You guys should definitely listen to it. Trump also refused to endorse the Speaker of the House, Paul Ryan, in his primary. And he also said not so nice things about John McCain and Kelly Ayotte, both also seeking re-election. And then he suggested women should quit their jobs if they're being sexually harassed at work. Change careers. Right. Change careers, change jobs. And then he also brought up a bunch of his older controversies, including comments about Megyn Kelly of, of Fox News and his mocking of a disabled reporter, which he says was definitely not mocking. And then at one of his rallies, when a baby was crying, he said he loves babies. And then... <laughs> Actually, I was only kidding. You can get the baby out of here. That's all right. Don't worry. I, I think she really believed me that I love having a baby crying while I'm speaking. That's okay. Oh, my Lord. People don't understand. That's okay. 
So there, there is actually more that we could have listed, but we didn't list. Did he shoot in, a bald eagle? In, in, I mean, a lot of these things are like... This, these, Deep fry these, a bald eagle and actually, eat it. These are actually greatest hits. It's not an exhaustive list by any means. Yeah, and, and if we did have an exhaustive list, if we explained the context of all of these things, we would be here for three hours. But So here's the question. Does any of this matter? Well, it's like all of this happens, and then... The next day, he's like, I just raised a bunch of money. Like, he finds ways to bounce back. And I know that we're going to talk about that later, but it seems like when he wants to, he can turn it around, right? Yes, but I'm going to submit that I feel something different is going on. And that is evidenced by the fact that we have seen so much of this behavior throughout the past year, literally, yes. 13 months. And we have seen it all through the primaries, and it did not seem to do much damage to Donald Trump. It may have been doing some that we did not see, but he continued to win the primaries. He continued to get a plurality of the votes, almost half the total Republican vote, and that was a lot of votes this year. It was 30 million votes overall. He got 14 million. And so he did not seem to be harmed, but something was going on, and now we are in a different game. So Ron, and there's a different type of people. I mean, like the group of people voting now is larger and not just primary voters, right? And the number of people who are just paying attention. Now, they're not going to be voting until November, but they are paying attention in a different way. And we're seeing that, I think, to some degree reflected in the polls. Hillary Clinton got a little bounce out of her convention, and then it got much bigger with every day that went by after her convention. That's what's unusual. And it was clearly driven by the controversy over the Gold Star family and all of these other controversies in, to some lesser degree. Right. This whole con thing feels like it's up at that level with Judge Gonzalo Curiel from, from I believe that was June. It's really hard to tell what happened when in a year like this. But that was June. That was a moment that Donald Trump's kind of feud picking uh, tendencies did hurt him with voters, did hurt him in the polls. And you really saw that with this ongoing con controversy this week with the amount of, of high profile Republicans who distanced themselves from him. And uh, some of these polls coming out, I believe it was the Fox News poll. It was something like 70 percent of the people uh, polled thought he, he handled that poorly. That, yeah, that, 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 that was wrong of him. And, uh, and something like 19 percent said right on Donald Trump, <laughs> which may be his like core. Right. That might be his core base. And I also think what I, what I found unique with the con story is that they kept at it. You know, mm -hmm. after the speech, they made the rounds on the Sunday shows and the Monday shows and the Tuesday shows. It seems as if that more so got under Trump's skin than just one speech. I, I think what you have is you have the these are this is a gold star family. This isn't someone who it, it feels like he's punching down. Yeah, if he's he, he here is, is a, down. Here yeah. is a man who is running for president of the United States and he is saying why don't I get to fight back against these regular people who just suffered a terrible And not even loss? that, like he's saying that they don't have the right to even say anything about him. That was what was so weird about it. And, he does and it, only conf it, it, it only made the argument that Mr. Khan was making that Trump had not read the Constitution <laughs> seem a bit more valid. Because he, he does, does have the right yeah. to say what he wants to say. That After actually is the, the bottom line, I think, on, on this whole business with the Gold Star family was that very few people saw them at the convention on the Thursday night of Hillary Clinton's nomination. It was only 6 o'clock, less than 6 o'clock on the West Coast. It was about 9 o'clock on the East Coast. Not everybody saw these folks. But not after Donald Trump went after them. Then they were being invited onto all those shows to respond to Donald Trump responding. And that went on and on and, and kept turning over day after day. And it became a thing, the biggest thing we have seen outside of the candidates in quite some while in the political process in this summer. So in the last, I don't know, 48 hours, it feels like 
the Republican world has begun a collective freakout. Now, not their only collective freakout, but it seems like a collective freakout has begun. It suddenly seems like there's this feeling of, oh, gosh, he's down 10 points in the polls, and he's also not even standing by the Republicans who are running for lower office. And there's rumblings like from campaign sources that say all is not well even inside Camp Trump. This is why the conventional wisdom is not always wrong. One of the things that people are told is after you've been nominated and you have all of that secured and your party is theoretically behind you, start thinking about November and think about nothing else but and think about the Electoral College and think about the very people you need to go after. That's what pivoting to the general means. And candidates who have thought they didn't need to have not done well. The Barry Goldwaters, the George McGoverns, those people have not done well. And there is a reason why people are told to pivot. President Obama this week weighed in on this storm that has been Donald Trump. He was asked Tuesday at a press conference if, given the week Trump had had, whether he questioned Trump's fitness to lead. And President Obama said yes. And then he said this about GOP leaders who had distanced themselves from Trump's statements. This isn't a situation where you have an episodic gaffe. This is daily and weekly where they are distancing themselves from statements he's making. There has to be a point at which you say, this is not somebody I can support for president of the United States. Even if he purports to be a member of my party. And uh, the fact that that has not yet happened makes some of these denunciations ring hollow. I felt like he didn't need to say that. I I mean, it seems as if the Republicans are causing enough of their own problems. Obama didn't need to wade into this one. Or did he? As Tamara and I, as a film that we like to watch, uh, has a line, maybe it's a trap. A twap! It's a twap! What film is this? Don't worry about it. It's it's (laughs) a Star Wars reference. But it's a trap. But it is a trap. Scott, explain. It's a trap because uh, the Democratic Party as a whole wants to tie every single Republican running for any sort of office to Donald Trump because they think that's a sell they can make, especially in these Senate races in Democratic heavy states. So if you're inching yourself away from Donald Trump, if you're a Republican thinking, I don't want to be associated with this guy, but the leader of the opposite party telling you to do exactly what you're doing, maybe you don't want to do it. Maybe you don't want to sound like you're taking advice from Barack Obama. And so maybe you don't. So at exactly then you're the time stuck. When you should. You're yeah. stuck between a Barack Obama and a Donald Trump, and there's no, there is nothing good for you as a candidate for the Senate between the two of them. When I first heard Obama say this the other day, I thought he was the one who had fallen into a yeah. trap. I thought that was my very first thought. I thought now the Republicans can rally around being against Obama, and they can say, "See, he's inserting himself. He is intruding on our process, and make him the bad guy." It didn't come down that he way. It didn't. It did not play out that way, to my surprise. Instead, what happened was the Republicans all got very quiet, as though they were seeing it as a trap, as though they were saying, this has been elevated to the level of the president of the United States calling us out. That hurts. Do we see more of this from Obama? Does it, it, will he be commenting more frequently on Donald Trump? Well, it's funny you should ask, Sam, because... Because as we tape this right now, uh, we are waiting for the president to speak again. He's giving a, a press conference Thursday afternoon, and 
Later in this episode, we will come back and talk about whatever it is that he says. Um, But President Obama has said he is going to be active in this campaign, that he is not going to shy away from this fight. It's also personal between Trump and Obama. (laughs) They have a history, you know. So if there's anyone that I think the president is primed to campaign against, it would be that man. Let me just say that we're recording this podcast on the 4th of August, which is, of course, the president's birthday. And the birthday... Where was he born, Ron? birthday, the birthday, and the birthplace have been a source of great animosity and friction between the Wait, president and Donald Trump. Wait, do they think he's lying Trump. about his birthday, too? <laughs> the actual date, I don't think, okay. is as much in dispute. But the president But the location. <laughs> yes. Yes, the location. And, and just, in fact, in the past week, uh, a couple of people very close to Donald Trump, including his former campaign director, Corey, Corey Lewandowski, Lewandowski, who is still more or less a spokesperson for him, and one of his sons basically tried to renew the birther controversy by asking mm-hmm. whether or not Barack Obama was a citizen when he was at Harvard and by asking whether or not we really know where he was born. They started demanding the Harvard transcripts again. Last week. But, I mean, I think the one thing that I've thought over the last week or so as we've seen Donald Trump kind of careen from, from one controversy to another is that he could not more perfectly fall into the script that Democrats had written for him with their main convention messaging than what he's been doing. Because Obama and Hillary Clinton and Joe Biden and every other big speaker made this argument kind of appealing to moderates, even appealing to some Republicans, saying Donald Trump is just temperamentally not fit to be president. He's vindictive. He's unpredictable. And then he goes out and picks fights with with like the parents of, of dead soldiers, you know? What must it be like to be working on Trump's campaign right now? Like, is the infrastructure of that campaign okay right now? It doesn't seem like well, it is. Donald Trump says it's tremendous. It's yeah. perfect. In fact, it's never, it's never been, been more been united. Uh, but look, there's always been a cottage industry of gossip around political campaigns, yes. and it's fueled by people like us who speculate all the time and who ask people we questions. We don't speculate. We provide analysis. And huh? when they... And that is correct. <laughs> and there is currency in being a campaign insider. Exactly. Yes. And yes. so the people that we call who say, gee, I can't comment on that, call me back in five seconds as a un named person close to the candidate, and maybe I can, that sort of game gets played all the time. And it's been a cottage industry, and this year it has become a Mar-a-Lago-sized industry. Oh my but goodness. then there's this, there's this feedback loop that starts to happen, too. When a campaign thinks it's losing, you get more of this kind of sourcing and the backbiting because people are trying to blame the other person. Like, this podcast him. is Sam's fault. It's not my fault. You I know? believe that is referred to as the CYA agency. Yes. <laughs> Another thing that has begun to be discussed in the last week or so by Donald Trump is the idea that the election is rigged. Sort of building some ground. But not a new thing that he is. He said for a while. The word rigged has been used by him a lot. Well, he he thought that the primary was rigged. Yes. And now he's saying... Well, you know, maybe the general election is going to be rigged, too. You know, some courts have overturned some voter ID laws. There could be voter fraud. And I think, Scott, you've reported on this also. Yeah. You had Donald Trump say, uh, I'm worried the election is going to be rigged at a rally. But then you had an interview that that Roger Stone, one of his uh, closest associates, even though if he doesn't formally work for the campaign anymore, was saying Donald Trump needs to start talking about the fact that the election could be rigged and and he needs to lay the groundwork, basically saying that if Hillary Clinton is elected, Donald Trump and his surrogates would not accept that as a legitimate outcome. And he talked about all sorts of protest and civil disobedience and and, and a lot of things that I think 
really frightened a lot of people who cover and follow elections because the truth is, like, in the end, our elections work because everybody acknowledges the person who won one, you know? And because people believe that when you go and you cast a ballot, your vote will be counted. Right. And that people generally believe that it works the way it's supposed to work. But in every scenario that I've mapped out in my head as how this election plays out, I can't even fathom Donald Trump giving a concession speech. It is also a little early to be talking about such things. We're still in the first week of August. And to be talking about what kind of skullduggery might happen in November is weird to be having those kinds of ideas. Roger Stone, we should also mention, is a guy who has written a book about how LBJ was responsible for the assassination of JFK. He's also a person who was a dirty tricks artist for the Richard Nixon campaign, the notorious campaign of 72. He also has a giant tattoo of Richard Nixon's face on his back. That is a fact. That serious? may be that really the, that, really, that is may, so disturbing. That may be the only thing we <laughs> really need to that. know. So I'm just mm. saying that that anything that Roger Stone suggests need not necessarily that is not be taken. True. It's true. Seriously. Stop it. Google no, it. I'm not. Yeah, everybody, that. Google it. I'm I not just, I just that. do. I just not have to see the picture. Mm, it's no. true. It's big Richard Nixon. <laughs> Back on track. Um, one other thing that I've noticed this week is the way that the news media is treating Trump and campaign surrogates. It seems as if the truth squatting, the fact checking, the calling people out for things that they see as not being true, that has been accelerated. I've seen a few um, interviews with campaign surrogates where they basically said to a Trump spokesperson, that's not true. You're lying. Your candidate's lying. There have been uh, chirons on CNN that have like in parentheses not true or that's false. It seems as if something has changed. I don't know if the media smells blood in the water. I don't know. It, I, something feels different. I would circle back to what I might have mentioned earlier about this being a different phase yeah. of the campaign. We're past the conventions. I think that journalists in general, the media in general, are a little hesitant to call people out about things like facts in the pre-convention season, mm-hmm. in the primary season, in the parties are sorting out their candidates season. Maybe they shouldn't be and maybe they won't be in the future, but that's been the past. And right now we're seeing the big pivot. Some people have described it as turning around the aircraft carrier huh. so that instead of steaming very steadily across the ocean, finally the big aircraft carrier of the media is swinging around. Ted Cruz warned about this during the primaries. He said, you watch. You guys are getting fooled by Donald Trump now because the media aren't really calling him out. But as soon as he's been nominated and he's the Republican, those media who love the Democrats, they're going to start going after him big time. Um, We need to move on to Hillary Clinton, who... um, Who's that? Yeah, uh, (laughs) and Hillary Clinton is, I don't know, in some ways... Totally okay with that. I mean, she gained about 10 points in the polls in a week where she was not in the headlines at all. So she's probably okay with it, especially since some of the things that Hillary Clinton did and said this week would have been negative stories if everyone wasn't focused on the Donald Trump parade of, uh, of gaffes and mistakes and insults. Yeah, Absolutely. so she on Sunday was on Fox News Sunday with Chris Wallace. And this was about uh, Clinton's email server. She's made public statements that she never sent or received classified information that was since proven to not really be the case. And so she was asked about whether her public statements matched the reality. After a long investigation, FBI Director James Comey said none of those things that you told the American public were true. 
Chris, that's not what I heard Director Comey say, and I thank you for giving me the opportunity to, uh, in my view, clarify. Director Comey said that my answers were truthful and what I've said is consistent with what I have told the American people. That there were decisions discussed. And yeah, so that's not really what Comey said. What Comey actually said was that the FBI found no evidence that she had lied to the FBI about her email situation. Yeah, and if you go to nprpolitics.org, our colleague Bracton Booker wrote a very lengthy article kind of detailing everything she said in that interview that did not quite line up with what James Comey actually did say, which was a very harsh... Uh, Rebuke. Yeah, a public uh, statement indictment of Hillary Clinton and, and decisions she made, if not an actual criminal indictment. And that's something that we saw Hillary Clinton drop a lot in the polls a- after that uh, press conference from the FBI. But isn't it... Fi- this is the thing that I can't get at. I- I can't shake it. What she said to the public about those emails at the start of the scandal is different than what she's saying now. Right? Yes, yes. sir. Okay. That's, <laughs> I just, at some point. But like, does it matter? Yeah. I, yeah. Yes. Yeah. The, yes, the it public does. I believes, think it matters a lot. The public believes, large shares of the public believes that she lied. And it's baked in. Yes. Yes. And it's, it's totally going to be. baked in. It's probably going to be. Inextirpable. There's no way you're going to get good that. Whoa! Well, say that this word is again. Like Second, SAT like, yeah, Ron, you were spell it and use that. it in a sentence right now. <laughs> the, the stain that was left upon the bathtub was inextirpable. Oh, Ron! Now spell it. Mm, I'm not really going to go there. No, this is bad enough as it is, and I assume we'll cut it all out. But it, but look, what 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 is there? As you say, is baked in. People have. Decided she's not trustworthy, and the email controversy has become the focal point for that. It's not the only reason. There were a lot of people who didn't think she was trustworthy years and years and years ago. But this has become the focal point for a whole new generation of people who are just coming to be more serious about Hillary Clinton, particularly people under 30 voting for the first time, perhaps. And a lot of those folks got their impression of her from this very controversy. That's why it matters, and that's why it has held her back. You know, the Republicans yeah. talk about how well they'd be doing with any other nominee. I suspect that given what Donald Trump has been doing, if the Democrats had a somewhat less controversial, more likable nominee in the eyes of many, they might be uh, They in both some... need each other. They are, they are the <laughs> Kanye West and Taylor Swift of U.S. politics. Though her... It is a weird symbiosis. What else has she been up to this week, though? She had a bus tour? There was a bus tour. I was on that bus tour. It was... Um... through the. So I got a, a tweet from someone. They were like, you guys called it a Rust Belt bus tour. He didn't <laughs> like the phrase Rust Belt. What else could we call it? We could call it Pennsylvania and Ohio. <laughs> How about Swing State Tour? Ah. We could call it Donald Trump Country because a lot of ah. these areas are very white, very working class areas where Donald Trump would be expected to do well and where he needs to do extremely well to compensate for how well he will not do in places like Cleveland and Philadelphia. Hmm. How was the tour? I saw a photo of her and Tim Kang ordering ice cream together. It was cute. Oh, I have a fun story about that. Do tell. Uh, so they ordered ice cream together, and it was what very flavors? sweet. Um, he got some sort. They actually ordered milkshakes, and he got some sort of like mint mocha thing, and she got a turtle milkshake. Um, and then they stopped, and she did like a short media avail. Mm-hmm. Um, availability. La- availability. A-, a gaggle. The last time she did this was back in June. So this is like she took questions from reporters. This is a big thing. And um, Senate candidate Ted Strickland was like behind her because he was on the bus tour for the Ohio part, eating a strawberry ice cream out of a waffle cone. <laughs> and 
He dripped strawberry ice cream on Hillary Clinton's jacket in the <laughs> no. middle of this the flower press jacket. Cat. Yes. No. <laughs> Somehow that escaped. That's a fancy jacket. I saw that jacket. And yeah. there was this woman Immediate holding a baby it. who like is waiting to was get the her. Was the baby crying? And where was was no, Trump? No, no, no. The time? baby was patiently I'm waiting to be kissed. Anyone yell at the baby? I'm a Trump no. joke. <laughs> Sorry. Baby patiently waiting to be kissed, and the mom like pulls out a baby wipe and oh. hands it to Ted Strickland and is like, "You dripped ice cream on her. You might need this." <laughs> That's great. But, you know, but actually, people people. actually, apart from that, you know, major mediagenic event, uh, this would have been a good place to hang out if you were in the witness protection program all week long because yeah. there really was not a lot of attention being paid to this tour. Was the news right. made in this gaggle? Uh, well, so here's the thing about the gaggle. The entire gaggle was devoted to questions about Donald Trump. Ooh. That's that's that a that's a that's a tough pitch. So, should so we swing can't... at that one or shall we let it go by? Yeah. So the real message, the thing she was trying to do on this tour was I mean, she was essentially trying to figure out her campaigns trying to figure out if they can break through with white working class voters, white working class men. And they were trying out a message and we we have a little audio of it and in and in every city she stopped in, she had different examples. He talks about putting America first. Right? Well, then why does he make Trump suits in Mexico instead of Brooklyn, Ohio? Why does he make furniture in Turkey instead of Cleveland? I would have liked Turkey and Texas. The T's would have had a little yes, better Yeah, ring no, to but it. she actually would have like specific city yeah. names of yeah. where things were made. Yeah. And then ties in Toledo instead of Japan. <laughs> They were made in China. And there's actually a new ad on that too, right? It's a, it's a clip of Donald Trump on David Letterman a while back where, where Letterman's grilling him on the fact that none of his stuff was actually made in America. Yes. Speaking of ads. Uh, someone still hasn't <laughs> run any. In his... Someone still hasn't run any, but uh, ads cost money. That's the biggest expense for, for most campaigns. And we kind of talked about everything going wrong, wrong for Donald Trump over the last couple of weeks. He did raise a ton of money, didn't he? Absolutely. Eighty-some million dollars uh, and a relatively small average number uh, on that contribution. So that's the Bernie Sanders influence. Everybody wants to have relatively small contribution numbers. But on the other hand, we still haven't seen how much he spent to raise that money. And judging by what I get in my phone, yesterday I got five different appeals from five different Trump entities or agencies that were working for the Trump campaign, all offering to sell me a copy of The Art of the Deal. For $184. For $184. Every single one of them the same. And these just kept coming in and coming in and coming in. There is a little bit of expense involved in that. Plus, of course, he has to give up his entire basement stash of old copies of Art of the Deal. Yeah, I bought The Art of the Deal on Kindle earlier this year for a story we did. Did you like it? It cost a lot less than $184. Gonna bet. Um, But I think, I mean, we were talking about, I think it's important to bring the context back with with the Trump fundraising. The fact is, two months ago, he had the amount of money uh, in his campaign account that like a typical House candidate has, less than a typical House candidate. He had like basically no money. He had less than Ben Carson at one point, right? Yeah, everybody was freaking out about this. Shortly after those headlines, the Trump campaign kicked it into gear, actually made an effort to start raising money. They've now had two months in a row where they brought in a decent amount of money. It's still not as much as Hillary Clinton, but we also have not seen them actually take that money and spend it on things. Uh, Hillary Clinton still has a huge advantage in terms of the number of ads that that she's going to be running over the next few months. And the Trump campaign just has not bought that much advertising. 
And the fact is, for all the stuff that, that we talk about in terms of high-tech outreach, you still get to the most voters with, with big TV ads. This is a place to acknowledge that one of the places we've all been amazed month after month for the last year is how Donald Trump gets away with spending so little money on television advertising and winning primary after primary. He has... He's the master of social media. He gets a lot of great word of mouth. He gets a lot of free coverage on television. And I think he might just be thinking he doesn't need to buy the kind of ads that Mitt Romney bought or John McCain bought because he isn't sure that they did them that much good and he might just thrive without them. That's actually something he talks about in Art The Art of the, the deal. deal. He talks about the importance of getting free advertising from the press. All right, well, let's take a break. And when we get back, we will talk about what the president had to say this afternoon. Hey, it's Robert and Stacy from the Planet Money team. You know, a lot of places report on the oil business. But we got into the oil business. We bought 100 barrels of crude oil in Kansas. We shipped it, we refined it, and we got it to your gas tank. Check it out on the next few episodes of Planet Money. You can find us on iTunes or NPR One. Hey there. Before we get back to the show, I want to encourage you real quick to check out the NPR One app. It has a special collection of stories constantly updated called Election Essentials. You can hear this podcast as well as all of the radio stories we do that you consistently hear us talking about here on the show. It's a really good way to keep up with all things audio from NPR politics. Again, it's Election Essentials, and you can find it on the NPR One app. Okay, back to the show. Okay, we're back. President Obama spoke just before 5 p.m. today, kind of in the middle of when we were taping this episode of the podcast. This was a press conference at the Pentagon, which is unusual. And, and he was there to get an update on the fight against ISIS. Then he updated the American people. And he also talked a little bit about politics. But, but first he said that ISIS has not had a major success in Iraq or Syria in the last year. He vowed that progress against them will continue. He called out Russia and said Russia needs to do more to help fight violence in Syria. So I want to repeat, ISIL has not had a major successful offensive operation in either Syria or Iraq in a full year. Even ISIL's leaders know they're going to keep losing. In their message to followers, they're increasingly acknowledging that they may lose Mosul and Raqqa. And ISIL is right. They will lose them. And we'll keep hitting them and pushing them back and driving them out until they do. So this still felt like the president not doing a really good job speaking to Americans' fears of ISIS. You can tell the American people that they haven't had a major success in Iraq or Syria, but they've had some successes in other places around the world. And he did acknowledge that. He acknowledges this, but I still... Yeah, I agree with you, Sam. And, uh, you know, we were sitting there watching watching this. And we talked about this at the time, too. But I think it's striking that a lot of times throughout his entire presidency, I think when, when President Obama is talking about a foreign policy issue that he is being defensive on, that he Mm -hmm. is reacting to, that is not something that he's pushing forward himself, like the Iran deal. He almost has this almost bored tone. He looks like he's going through the motions. He's like, I'm here to talk to you about ISIS. Here's how things are going. We are making improvements. Here's and then he listed like all these places that we've taken ground. But then he kind of contradicts himself because he says at the same time there's been attacks all over the world and, and for about 40 seconds listed different places where they've been on the attack. But I think the tone is something that his critics have picked up on over the course of his presidency. 
And I think it is a real thing that he often just feels like he's checking off boxes and doesn't really feel engaged with what what he's talking about. And I also think, I mean, you want to feel like someone is saying to you, whether they say it or not, I get it. You're scared. Yeah. I get it. This is a thing. I just, I, I've never felt that he is particularly strong in talking about ISIS. And this did not change my mind on that. And he, and he clearly feels as though this is something that he can't lay off entirely on his predecessor yeah. like we could with al-Qaeda or the Iraq war or Afghanistan or something else because ISIS as an entity has arisen, right. maybe not as an ideology, but as an entity has arisen on his watch and he does have that vulnerability. But I, I think he just can't overcome his, his desire to communicate to you the way he thinks of it. Yeah. He thinks of it in a certain way. And can't you just see how rational and calm and sensible that is? Fear is well, not rational. Well, exactly. Fear is not rational. Exactly. And then up comes Donald Trump and says, be very afraid and I will make you safe. And, and right. some, some voters want to hear that. Yes. He also called on Congress to pass funding to fight the Zika virus, which is now in Miami. And he called it a serious threat to Americans. And then he was asked about Donald Trump's comments, the ones we were just talking about a few minutes ago, that the election in November might be rigged. It is. uh, I don't even really know where to start on answering this question. Uh, Of course, the elections will not be rigged. What does that mean? The federal government doesn't run the election process. States and cities and communities all across the country, they're the ones who set up the voting systems and the voting booths. And uh, if Mr. Trump is suggesting that there is a conspiracy theory that is uh, being propagated uh, across the country, including in places like Texas, (laughs) uh, uh, where... Typically, it's not Democrats who are in charge of uh, voting booths. Um, that's ridiculous. That doesn't make any sense. And I don't think anybody would take that seriously. And he makes the point that, that not only that states and localities run all of this rather than the federal government, but that, you know, it just really doesn't make much sense to complain about this in early August when we aren't even going to be doing any scorekeeping or tallying of actual votes until November. I mean, this we know where this comes from. It comes from the accusations that the Democratic National Committee under Debbie Wasserman Schultz, no longer the chair, uh, was somehow rigging the nomination for Hillary Clinton because there were some people who didn't get to vote in Brooklyn, some people didn't get to vote in Phoenix, even though none of that was administered in any way, shape, or form by the Democratic National Committee. And then Obama was like, so Donald Trump... If Mr. Trump is up 10 or 15 points uh, on Election Day and ends up losing, then, you know, maybe he, uh, he can raise some questions. That doesn't seem to be the case at the moment. Burn. Okay, um, so President Obama is now... Headed out on vacation. He's going to be on Martha's Vineyard for a couple of weeks, so we probably won't hear from him too much. It's time for listener mail, starting with a question from Texas. Hey, guys. I'm Alec. I'm 15, and I live in Houston, Texas. I was wondering if it's possible that Donald Trump could choose to not participate in a debate. After Hillary Clinton's DNC speech, I heard a commentator mention the possibility, and Donald Trump just tweeted saying, As usual, Hillary and the Dems are trying to rig the debates so two are up against major NFL games. Same as last time with Bernie. Unacceptable. Could he be beginning to list excuses for why he thinks the debates will be unfair? 
Thanks so much. Love the podcast. So first, very high quality recording. Yeah. <laughs> you did well with that. You've got a future in public radio, good sir. And to the point, Ron. It is conceivable that Donald Trump might decide that the debates would not work in his favor. It's hard to imagine, though, because he is an admirer of his own performance in the Republican debates in the primaries. He obviously uh, did well in the sense of attracting votes and attracting attention. Certainly, everything seemed to revolve around him on stage. So I can't imagine that he isn't eager to to debate Hillary Clinton and bring up all these subjects that he feels that the uh, dishonest media have failed to bring up. And so I do not believe that he will try to get out of the debate. But if he should choose not to participate, that is his prerogative. And for the record, Donald Trump's campaign says that he is absolutely going to do the debates. Hillary Clinton has said she is absolutely going to be there. I could see a scenario in which if Donald Trump loses the first debate badly, he doesn't go to the second one. (laughs) Well, I, 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 I could see him saying this was rigged, this was unfair, and whatever, remember, whatever. And remember John McCain actually tried to get out of the debates in 2008? That was right when the financial crisis kind of everything totally melted down. Oh, yeah, he wanted down. to like put a freeze on it or something. Yeah, and Obama had that comeback of saying, I think presidents need to be able to do more than one thing at a time. Walk, Walk and chew gum. gum. I think the one thing about the debates that I'm really curious to see is, you know, Donald Trump turned the primary debates into a Donald Trump show, right? He uh, He would take attacks on him and kind of tussle back and insult back. And then it was just this kind of like free for all. But the fall debates are so serious and so structured and so much different. The audience isn't cheering. You've got like Jim Lair moderating. It's a very serious Here's the difference. Like when you have 17 people on a stage, it's pretty much definitely going to end up like a housewives reunion show where everyone's (laughs) just yelling back and forth. But when it's just two people, it's a different vibe. Okay, here's another listener, Brian in New York. Hey, guys. Love the show. Sam Sanders is bae. Hey! (laughs) I'm curious, now that Trump and Clinton are the official nominees of their parties, if there were to be some sort of major scandal that would cause one of them to have to drop out of the race... What happens then? Is there a mechanism or a process in place for the parties to choose a new nominee before Election Day? Thanks. Professor Elving? Well, then we have to go all the way back to Iowa, and we have the caucuses all over and the New Hampshire primary all over. I can't do that again, Ron. (laughs) No. 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 And and look, we haven't had this situation. Amazingly enough, in 240 years of the republic, this hasn't happened, and, and let's hope that it never does. But... The Republicans and the Democrats have procedures for choosing someone if the nominee should become incapacitated or die or quit. So in the absence of any of those circumstances, uh, these are going to be the candidates. But if one of those things were to happen, then the Republican committee or the the National Democratic Committee would have to meet and vote a new nominee. And they're not under... How many people are in the group that meet in each party? Well, they're they're, they're the National Committee and the the Republican National Committee is a man and a woman from each state Uh. plus other party officials. It's not a huge number. It's about 130. The Democrats, hey, this is going to surprise you, much larger group. You don't say. Much larger group. And finally, Rachel wrote us this note. Not a question, but more of a statement. Here we go. Hi, all. I'm a regular listener to your podcast and keep hearing you question how many undecided voters there really are. I personally don't know how many people who are between Trump and Clinton, but I think a lot of people, myself included, No, they can't vote for one candidate and just haven't decided if they can vote for the other. Just my two cents. Keep up the good work. Rachel. No, I think Rachel is legion. Yeah. 
I, I think there are lots of people who feel that way. They've eliminated one candidate, can't mm-hmm. vote for him, can't vote for her. And they're just trying to decide if there's one they can vote for. I think that's a lot. And, yeah. and that's why, you know, we've, we've talked so much about the, the lead in the polls that Hillary Clinton seems to be opening up recently. Uh, the Wall Street Journal and NBC News poll came out as we were taping. It's a nine-point lead for Hillary Clinton. But the thing is, she's not above 50% in many, if any, of these polls. She's in the high 40s. The fact is there, there are a lot of people who are still trying to sort out how they're feeling about this election. And with that, it's time for Can't Let It Go, the final part of our weekly roundup when we all share one thing we just cannot stop thinking about this week, politics or otherwise. Scott. I have two words. Olympic fanfare. (laughs) The Olympics start tomorrow. And I am so excited. I love the Olympics. And one aspect of covering the election is that I totally forgot they were coming. I was doing an interview (laughs) last week in Philadelphia and somebody mentioned the Olympics and I stopped the interview and I was like, oh, my God, you're right. The Olympics are starting. So what's your favorite sport? I actually love the Winter Olympics more, but uh, Summer Olympics, I like watching all the swimming. I like the uh, the bike racing just because it's fun to watch how that plays out. But most Ooh. of all, I love Bob Costas. Uh, I love like... Whatever Bob Costas it. does. I love the gymnastics. That and this too. year's team, this year's women's squad is going to blow y'all's mind. Simone Biles, a gift from the heavens. I watched the... Gabby Douglas, still in it. It's going to be so good. That's true. I watch. I watch their qualifiers, yeah. and I'm excited about. Simone that is otherworldly. Yeah, it's crazy. I like all the because I like like discovering sports that I forgot existed over the last four years, <laughs> and then like being like, I know all the rules to the archery or like the pistol shooting or whatever or like the random horse dancing. So I'm very excited. Dressage. Dressage. It's dressage. called dressage. Dressage. All right, Sam. So. There has been talk that whatever happens this election, Trump's brand goes Hashtag up. brand, Sam. Right. Hashtag, Hashtag brand. brand. But there's some new data that suggests that this election is actually hurting his brand in some respects. Uh, Foursquare keeps data around foot traffic in various places. And they have seen a 10% drop in foot traffic to Trump hotels, casinos, and golf courses since he announced his campaign last year. And they say that they've that this data is solid because it predicted Chipotle's low earnings, Apple's iPhone sales. Like this is a good predictor. Is it possible that people are just not using Foursquare anymore because they're using Pokemon Go now to indicate their location? All I'm saying is they sent some data over to me that says uh, visits to Trump Taj Mahal, Trump Soho, Trump International Hotel, Trump Tower Chicago are down like 17 to 24 percent from last year. I think I'm with Tam. My initial response was, oh, people still use Foursquare. Okay. (laughs) Ron? A little chill going through the podcast there. Uh, Foursquare's a thing. (laughs) Okay. No one will hate on your thing, Ron. Unless we support. You can't. You're in a safe space here, Ron. You cannot because it is an 11-year-old boy. (sighs) Yeah. And he he got up at a Mike Pence rally, got the microphone, and quite confidently asked a rather sophisticated question. Good morning, (laughs) Governor Pence. Uh, My name is Matthew, and I'm 11 years old. And I've been watching the news lately, and and I've been noticing that you've been kind of softening up on Mr. Trump's um, policies and words. Is this your role in the? Is this going to be your role in the administration? Are you the fabric softener? <laughs> <laughs> What's your name, son? Matthew. Matthew. What did you say that I've been doing? Uh-huh. You've been kind of softening up on his words. <laughs> Let me tell you, Matthew. Number one, this boy's got a future. Um, Always compliment the kid. 
So, so let's let's just say that uh, that young Matthew, eleven years old, does probably have a future. I'm yeah. not sure whether he wants to be in politics or he wants to be commenting on politics. We should all watch our backs. You know, sometimes things don't always come out like you mean, right? And uh, Donald Trump and I are absolutely determined to work together. We have different styles. You might have noticed that. Just identified with him, thought, what a great, you know, what a great sign that the future will, will have little bits of the past. In you it. know, Ron, I believe the children are our future. Teach them well, let them lead the way. Hold it. Let me get this down. <laughs> Was that a Michael Whitney Jackson Houston. quote? It's Whitney Houston. Oh, God. It's Whitney Houston. <laughs> We, we are. Tam, yeah, right, let's right. pause from the Whitney Houston. What is your can't let it go? <laughs> what I can't let go of this thing came through my Twitter feed today. A video that was released in 2012 from Access Hollywood, the the um, trusted news source. Trusted news source. Billy Bush, the correspondent, decides to do like a fun feature for the 2004 election day. And goes out with Donald Trump in 2004. Welcome back to Access Hollywood Live. It's voting day, and it takes me back to a beautiful place. So this is 2012 when he's talking about 2004. I went voting with one of the real great Americans, (laughs) Donald Trump, and we went to his polling place, and his, uh, his temperament quickly changed. His temperament. His temperament. So, flashback to 2004. Here's the video. Where are we going here? There's no line at all here. 126. Oh, why? Do I have to go to a different place, actually? There's a little drama at the, at the polling booth. We like that. Do me a favor. We double the, check. We have the paperwork. Double check. Okay. Let me see what's I'm calling my lawyer right now. Go ahead. Work on it. So, he gets to <laughs> he his first... He goes to the wrong polling place? He gets to his first polling place, and they're like, yeah, no, you're not on the rolls here. Um, oh. So, rigged even then. Got testing. Oh, Did he have a photo ID? So then he went to a second polling place. Wherever you want us to go, where do we go? To 520. 520 Park Avenue. Okay, yes. I like that location better. Come on. <laughs> it's a richer location. Oh. Yeah, so the, he wasn't on the list at the second polling place either. They don't have it here either. You believe this? They don't have it in this book. He's not in, he's not in my book either. Is there any way to check ahead of time if that's what happened? Maybe we'll call three How I let them keep filming? I'd be like, turn, turn the cameras off. Yeah, so they went to three polling places. Oh, my God, no. Hi, fellas. Yes. How are you? Yes. You have my name here? If his name is not on these rolls, there will be a huge combustion in here. Well, I'm going to fill out the absentee ballot. That's, That's the problem. That was. He wasn't registered to vote. <laughs> so that is the problem. He was not so registered. He picks up a provisional ballot. You didn't do right by me. You didn't do right by me, man. You know that, right? I know. You know that. So what was that all about? Turned out a change of address for uh, Trump's son, Donald Jr., was the catalyst for dad's polling place chaos here. Goodness. So there you go. There you go. (laughs) So even in 2004, Donald Trump was showing a tremendous amount of concern for whether or not Americans could trust the integrity of their elections. I find find that Ron just brought it impressive. Full circle. Okay, that's a wrap for this week. Because the greatest <laughs> love of all is, is happening, happening to, to you. <laughs> we'll see you next week. <laughs> Probably at some point before Thursday. Just check your feed early and often. Until then, more of our coverage is at nprpolitics.org and, of course, on your local public radio station. And please do rate us on iTunes if you enjoy the podcast. That helps other folks find it. And thank you for sending your questions and comments and original songs to NPR Politics at NPR.org. I'm Tamara Keith. I cover the White House and the campaign. 
I'm Sam Sanders, campaign reporter. I'm Scott Detrow, campaign reporter. I'm Ron Elving, editor correspondent, backup singer. And yeah. thank you for listening to the NPR Politics Podcast. <laughs> <laughs>